possibility that they were shipping me off for a few days just to give themselves a taste of freedom. For I had not grown, as I preferred to think, into the vaguest semblance of adulthood, but rather into a serious and lasting form of nuisancehood. As even I had noticed, I could not be good at home and at school at the same time, which meant that I was a worry to my parents all the time. At school I had become a fourth-grade Thomas Paine, striking blows for liberty, which of course earned me in return blows of yardsticks, rulers, and other pedagogical weapons, which I welcomed as distractions from the established order. At home I was actuated, like Daniel Boone, by a desire for elbow room, and our house seemed to me to be growing smaller by the day, as densely crowded by the other five members of our family as if it had been no bigger than a phone booth. And so I can't think now that my parents were grieving over my departure or that they were going to miss me much. On the other hand, I was good, a model boy, at least when I was in sight, on my visits to both sets of my grandparents. In their houses, for me, peace reigned and I could even count on being spoiled a little as a just compensation for my goodness. And so, of course, I loved those visits, especially when I could go alone. When I got downstairs, my father had my breakfast on the table. Orange juice, eggs, bacon, and toast. The bacon fat had not been fried quite crisp. The eggs were done over easy as I liked them, but were rather crunchy around the edges because he had had the skillet too hot, and he had smeared the butter on the toast after he had toasted it. He certainly was not as good a cook as my mother, but I wisely made no comment. I only said, "'Where's the jelly?' "'You don't need any jelly,' he said in perfect good humor, meaning, I judged, that he had not been able to find it. "'I don't reckon I do,' I said." He said, Have you washed your face? No, I said, but I'm going to directly. He had cleaned up his own plate and was sipping his coffee and reading the paper. He evidently had plans of his own for that early morning. He was dressed for the office and was already wearing his hat. When I had finished eating, he said, Put your dishes in the sink. I carried my dishes away and when I came back, he said, still reading the paper, Go to the toilet. I did, and when I was finished, I went to the further trouble of washing my face and of wetting my hair, and combing it both front and back. I didn't brush my teeth because I had packed my toothbrush the night before. When he was ready, my father put on his overcoat and handed me my mackinaw and toboggan. It'll be cold out there, he said. Have you got enough clothes? Long underwear and sweater. Extra clothes in the grip. Where are your gloves? In my coat pocket. Well, put on your overshoes. I did, while he watched. He picked up the grip, and we started for the door. Be quiet, he said. He had things on his mind. At the start of the morning, you could feel him aiming himself into the day. We drove down into town, to Front Street, without talking. I was wide awake, and it was good to feel the earliness of the morning. The town, dark yet, 
and mostly quiet. People were just up, or still waking up, or still asleep. We passed through the pools of light from the streetlights, one after another. The sound of the car's engine was loud and then quiet, quiet and then again loud, as we went by the other cars parked here and there along the still street. My father parked the car in front of the poppy shop, just a few doors down from his office. The poppy shop liked to call itself a luncheonette. It opened early in the morning for breakfast, served coffee, sandwiches, ice cream, and such, all day, and did duty besides as our bus station. As we got out of the car, I was quick to take charge of the grip myself. I didn't want to be seen allowing my father to carry it for me, and I didn't want there to be any mistaking who the traveler was. When we went in, my father stepped up to where...